We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6. We continue making our way through the book of 2 Samuel. Be in chapter 6 this morning. We're talking about making right decisions. It's been said many times since the mid-1800s that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. History is filled with people who made decisions with good intentions to only see that met with disastrous results. In the first four chapters of 2 Samuel, we saw the partial reign of David. That is, he was reigning only in the tribe of Judah, not over the nation as a whole. But in chapter 5, we saw the beginning of his national reign, where he's not just reigning over Judah now, he's reigning over the nation of Israel as a whole, as all the tribes came together to recognize him as king. But hopefully, as we're turning the pages of 2 Samuel, hopefully you are paying attention, hopefully you are noticing, you are observing a change that is happening in the heart of David. And one of the observations that is recorded for us is found right here in chapter 6, and it goes like this. I think this is very critical for us to, to tune in and lock in here, but, but, but the observation that we're going to see today and build on is this. As long as my intentions are good, God is good with whatever decisions I make. As long as my intentions are good. As long as I mean well, as long as my heart was in the right place, as we would say, as long as I'm operating from the, the best of places, God is good with whatever I decide. And I don't believe that David was alone in that line of thinking. But today, what I want to see is that as we walk through this, I hope that we will embrace wisdom from the scriptures to say, wait a minute. That is not a wise position for me to hold. It is not wise for me to operate from a place of making decisions from, well, God, I mean well. My heart's in the right place. I, I really, my intentions couldn't be better. As adults, we are all faced with making a number of decisions, aren't we? I mean, we're in the process of that now. College and all of that, and I mean, we're starting a new chapter. There's a big decisions that come with all this. And I believe at our core, we all desire to make right decisions, but to do that, if we're going to make right decisions, there is something that I do believe God will have us to understand from his perspective, and, that is, and it is this. The only decisions that are right in the eyes of God are biblical decisions. Those are the only decisions that are right in the eyes of God. Biblical decisions are not driven by good intentions. They're not driven by intellect. They're not driven by circumstances or feelings. They are driven by what Keith talked about from John 17, 17, thy word is truth. They're driven from there. 
They're driven by truth. And when it comes to decisions, many today, including believers, are simply making decisions based on what they believe to be right in their own eyes. The problem with that is when you make decisions that are right in your own eyes, but they're not right in the eyes of God, eventually you will pay dearly. You will pay very, very dearly. After establishing Jerusalem as the capital city and defeating the Philistines twice at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 5, David made the critical and monumental decision to move the ark of God to Jerusalem. Uh, This was not a trivial decision whatsoever. It was a decision that he absolutely had to get right. Trust me when I tell you, as we look at this, his intentions ultimately didn't matter. I mean, he was operating from a good place. His heart was in the right place. All of that, you can check the boxes, but, but he needed to be biblically technical in his handling of this A to Z. We pick it up in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 6. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baali of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubim. So this gathering would have been very similar to the gathering that chapter 5 began with, where all the tribes of Israel as a whole gathered together to embrace David as their king. And the size of this gathering also represented the size of the endeavor. It was big. This was significant. This was no light thing. Because the ark of God expressly represented the presence of God amongst his people on earth. This was huge. Verse 2 says, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. This was a very big deal. We're talking about the presence of God. The Philistines took the ark when they defeated Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we learn there that the glory departed from Israel at that time. God judged the Philistines for being in possession of the ark, which led them to return it, and it was ultimately returned to Baali, a city in Judah, also known as Bala or Kijath-Jerim in 1 Chronicles 13, where it remained in the house of Abinadab, for many years until David decided to have it moved. Now, this is where we begin to narrow our focus this morning on making decisions, making right decisions, that is. Because not only were David's intentions very good, they were also very right. What he was looking to do here was right, but he erred in a way that I know that I have erred a few times in my own life, and I would imagine I'm not alone. Look at First Chronicles 13 in your notes, beginning in verse 1. 
And David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds, and with every leader. And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and Levites, which are in the cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us, and let us bring again the ark of our God to us. For we inquire not at it in the days of Saul. And all the congregation said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people." The Bible tells us, as we know, that there is safety in the multitude of counselors into that. We can all say amen. David wisely sought counsel from others regarding this decision to move the ark to Jerusalem, and it was right in their eyes. So far, so good. But the one person (laughs) that he needed to consult that he didn't consult was God. Was God. Please, consulting with others is not a substitute for consulting with God. It's not. Consulting with others, listen, can be very dangerous, particularly when we have an agenda. And if we perceive a green light from others, then guess what we're quick to do? We're quick to perceive that as being a green light from the Lord. Because, hey, this person said they think it's a great idea. This person says they agree with it. This person says that they see it. My best friend, they're on board with it. God's got to be in this, right? This has got to be right. Now, this is not to imply that had David consulted God, that God would have told him no about moving the ark. The issue was David needed to be exact biblically in doing it. That was the issue. Had he consulted and waited on God, I do believe we avoid the disaster that we see here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. I believe that God would have informed him, yes, move it, but here's how you need to move it. It's been many years since since you've handled this or the nation's dealt with this, but we've got to be exact. We've got to be right here in terms of how we do this. So here's the first thing we got to see this morning. If we're going to make right decisions, we must consult and wait on God. We must do this. We must consult and wait on God. And listen, let's just be honest. This whole concept of waiting today is just short of offensive to us, is it not? When I want to do something, when I have an agenda, when I have an objective, I'm not interested in any delay whatsoever. Uh, This is why many are smothering in credit card debt. Why wait when MasterCard says, I can have it tomorrow? Or I can have it in 15 minutes? I don't have to wait for anything. 
I want what I want, and I want it now. But consulting and waiting on God was not something at at this point was even foreign to David. Go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 1 of 2 Samuel. David understood this concept. He understood this practice. Verse 1, And it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said, Unto Hebron. Okay, look at chapter 5 in verse 19. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the Philistines? Without deliver them into mine hand? And the Lord said unto David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into thy hand. Look at verse 23. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, Thou shalt not go up, but fetch a compass behind them, and come up and come upon them over against the mulberry trees. He, he got this. He understood this at one point. But again, what's happening is, is, is something's changing in his heart. Before we talk to anybody, before we put anything in motion, this is where we start. We come before the Lord. We put it before the Lord. We consult God in prayer, and we wait. Can I just tell you, I have made some horrific decisions. Listen, I consulted the Lord, but I didn't wait. Okay, God, I've given it to you in prayer. Thanks. I got it. I wouldn't wait for God to give an answer. I wouldn't wait for God to give clarity. You should know, though, that God takes notice when we make decisions and bypass his counsel. Joshua 9, verse 14. And the men took of their victuals. Now, let me just tell you, if you're like, you didn't say it right. No, I think I did say it right. I've heard fundamentals over the years say vittles. And I asked a very well-respected pastor, why do we say vittles? He says, it's just how we say it. Looks like victuals to me. <laughs> so if that's, if that's grinding on you, I'm sorry. I, so, and the men took of their victuals. I'm going to say it proudly. <laughs> and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. So here's Joshua and his leaders making an allowance, God, we got it. We got it. Uh, Isaiah 30, verses 1 and 2. Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down into Egypt, and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. What has led, what leads to, and what will lead to bitter results that come from horrific decisions is forsaking biblical counsel and turning to the world for counsel. 
This is a movie, unfortunately, that you see played out in church all too often. Marriages and families struggle. Struggle. Because somehow the world seems to know more than God does when it comes to marriage, parenting, and finances. I mean, surely God has nothing to say about that. God has no answer to that. God God isn't the expert on that. I actually read that he was because marriage, family, and the home was actually his idea. So I think he has a lot to say about it. And it was a worldly decision that led to this very costly outcome that we see here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Very worldly. In this first attempt to move the ark to Jerusalem, look at verse 3. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gabeah, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gabeah, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Now, in the book of Numbers, after the priests covered the holy things, God gave very critical and clear instructions to the Kohathite Levites about the transporting of the ark. Could not have been clear on a few things. One is found in Exodus 25, 14. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them. So the Korathite Levites were to move the ark by taking those staves and resting them on their shoulders. That was very, very clear. God made that clear. And that was not a small detail that was to be overlooked by anybody. The Philistines placed the ark on a cart, which was contrary to God's instructions. That was a worldly way of moving it. It wasn't God's way. God's way of transporting the ark protected anyone from touching it, which was an immediate death sentence. Look at Numbers 4, verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons have made an end of covering the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary, as the camp is to set forward, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These things are the burden of the sons of Kohath and the tabernacle of the congregation. For a number of reasons, I find it very hard to imagine how David would have overlooked any of this. I really do. Particularly the failure at Beth Shemesh in 1 Samuel chapter 6. I mean, this is something that David absolutely should have been familiar with. Are we having issues? Like, okay, all good. So, hey, no PowerPoint today. We'll be all right, right? I'm not hard to follow, am I? No. Mark, am I hard to follow? No, sir. Lori, am I hard? Oh. <laughs> Actually, this is a good day for you to get up and talk about how great of a husband I am. Your parents here? Would you come on off and share a quick testimony? <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so we're good. Thanks for trying. We'll be all right. Okay, 1 Samuel 6, 19, you just have it in your notes, right? 
And he smote the men of Beshemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord, even he smote of the people 50,000 and threescore and ten men. And the people lamented, because the Lord has smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beshemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall he go up from us? So many scholars question the validity of the number of people that died at Beshemesh for looking into the ark. 50,070 sounds a little outrageous, so it must be a mistranslation. The biggest problem with that is if it was just 70 instead of 50,070, then why would the people have lamented because of a great slaughter? It was a great slaughter. I mean, God broke out on them. I don't think you would word it that way if it was just 70. Again, not belittling that. One would have been plenty, but, but if it was a great slaughter, I believe it was 50,070. Another reason it's hard to believe that David would not have considered this was because Beth Shemesh was a town in Judah, the tribe that he was from. Like, this incident should have been burned in his mind. Not to mention, Baali of Judah or Kirjath-Jerim, where they were moving the ark from, was only 20 miles from Bethshemesh. I mean, this was inexcusable. If David was going to move this ark, what happened at Bethshemesh had to be on his mind. A man's life counted on it. Listen, I get it. With age comes greater responsibility, right? The more we age, the the larger our responsibility gets, which means the impact of our decisions is greater. You're, You're a parent. You are a manager in the workplace. You're a leader in ministry. Your decisions, they matter. Uh, they absolutely are ripple in effect. They're large. And we see this here beginning in verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments, made of fir wood, even on harps, and on psalteries, and on timbrels, and on cornets, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? The people were unified. They were in absolute agreement about this. Their intentions could not have been better. And they were in an all-out jam session before the Lord. It was a great time. But when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, God put a stop to the party. He crashed it. The oxen shook the cart, causing it to tip. And with, listen, nothing but pure 
and great intentions, Uzzah did something that everybody in this room in that same circumstance would have done instinctively with the best intentions. He put his hand out to stop it from falling over and died on the spot. That's what God thinks about your best intentions and mine when they are contrary to his word. He doesn't take it well. If we are going to make right decisions, we must have confirmation from the word of God. We must have confirmation from the word of God. If we are consulting and waiting on God, this is where he is going to lead us every time to make a right decision. God is going to bring us to his word and give us clarity and confirmation about whatever decision we are looking to make. And we have to have that regardless of how good our intentions are or how many people agree with us, our decisions must be in alignment with God's word. They must. They must. Husbands, let me just talk to you for just a minute. One of the biggest goals that you have as a husband is to ensure that your family is in alignment with God's word. It's one of the biggest responsibilities that you have is to make sure that your wife, your children, your home, everybody to the best of our ability, we are in alignment, we are tracking, we are in agreement with what the word of God says to all of us. You must. And please hear this, please. The two areas where being biblical in our decision making is most crucial is worship and holiness. Massive. And you want to be, I mean, airtight in alignment with God here. Airtight. The ark of God represented the presence of God on earth. Therefore, it was holy. But even the high priest had to be very careful with it. Consider Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 2. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the second cloud upon the mercy seat. Aaron was not allowed to come willy-nilly into the most holy place behind the veil anytime he wanted to. Unless he had a death wish. He could go once a year on the day of atonement, that was it. Any other time, God was clear. He's going to die. He's going to die. And given what happened to his sons, listen, Aaron would have heeded to those instructions. Because you read in Leviticus chapter 10 regarding his sons, beginning in verse 1, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, 
and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Nadab and Abihu took license that God did not give them in their approach to worship, and God didn't appreciate it. He broke out on them. Now, please, with great urgency, I need you to hear this. Because I think what we're going to do right here is correct some bad thinking that we do. And again, I understand how we approach and study the Bible. I understand uh, the keys of Bible study, the rules of Bible study about rightly dividing the word of truth. I get all of that, and I think we should do it. But please, do not miss this, because I think some of us subconsciously have. In the church age, God is not less serious about worship and holiness Somewhere along the way, we, we, these things about, well, we're in the age of grace, and, and, and part of our, our processing in that is that, well, that means that, that, that God doesn't have a problem with sin like he did in the Old Testament. That God is loose now when it comes to worship and holiness. It's all just kind of whatever feels good, do that. As long as your heart's in the right place. As long as you mean well, God's good with it. God's not all tight and worked up like he was in the Old Testament. Brothers and sisters, that is not only erroneous thinking, it's heretical. No, the God of the Old Testament, who is only holy, 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 is still holy, holy, holy. He is not less holy because we're in the church age. God's tolerance and, uh, you know, his disdain for sin hasn't taken a dip because Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose again the third day. Like, God's like, okay, everybody just relax and do whatever you want to do. Be careful. One of the things that breaks my heart today is that many have just lost the fear of God. And listen, when you lose the fear of God, any and everything is on the table. Anything is. You will think, say, and do anything because, well, God, God and I are cool. We're just tight. He's my buddy. One of the things I, I've said to my son a few times, I, I trust that he's got it. And it goes like this, son, you never want the guy who's over you to have to remind you that he's over you. You don't want that. Brothers and sisters, we don't want God to have to remind us that he is God. We don't want God to have to remind us, hey, be careful. Don't approach me that way. Don't be so flippant in your approach to worship. Don't be so flippant in your approach to holiness. Be careful. I am God. I'm holy, holy, holy. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That was true in the Old Testament. 
it's true today. It'll be true throughout eternity. I'm afraid that some are tempting God to break out on them with their good intentions about worship and holiness, and that is exactly what happened here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. God broke out on Uzzah. Unlike Aaron, who held his peace after God struck down his sons, David didn't do that. As a matter of fact, he had a problem with what God did. Look at verse 8. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? Perez Uzzah means a break of Uzzah. God broke out. But can you, are you seeing the shift in David's heart? You see it? We started this book seeing a man who was after God's own heart to now seeing a man who's displeased with the Lord. A man who is displeased with the Lord is not a man who is after God's own heart. I mean, early on in this book, this guy is just, I mean, his heart was in the right place, humble, contrite, all of it. And now he is actually displeased with the Lord. This is what I'm saying. This happens. Like we, as time goes on, we get comfortable and we get relaxed and, and we just don't have this right view of God. And it comes out in how we think, how we speak and our actions where we actually have the audacity to say, I have a problem with you. I'm displeased with you. Not only is that not a godly heart, but that's not the fear of the Lord. And true to form, when we get out of bounds with God, we don't view God right, and we don't respond right. Because, here we go. Listen very carefully. In David's opinion, this was too much. God, come on. God, look at his heart. He meant well. What, what were you doing, God? Come on. No. What David should have been displeased with was the decision to put the ark on a cart. He should have been displeased with that. He should have been displeased with Uzzah putting his hand on it. But his heart's not right. And he's not seeing God right. And he's out of alignment with God's word which only leads to a bad decision. And the mentioning of him being afraid of the Lord was not a reverent fear of God. It was, what are you going to do to me if I try and move this thing and I don't get it right? He should have been broken and contrite. This was on him, and he was ultimately responsible 
for man's death. Now, I'm closing. I want to make this very clear. Hopefully, the Word of God makes it clear. Romans 11, 33 and 34. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? Finite men cannot, will not exhaust the infinite mind of God. You can study the Bible all you want, learn all you want, but you are not going to scratch the surface on the mind of God. Therefore, God does not need our counsel. Doesn't need my input. (laughs) Doesn't need my opinion. But we do need his. But listen, if you are going to make right decisions in your life, then you and I got to embrace this. And, And this will be simple, but also challenging for us because of how much life we have lived. And I believe what we're going to say right here, I believe for many of us, it is second nature. What needs to become second nature, though, is our alignment with the Word of God and what God thinks, not what we think. So listen very carefully. Compared to the wisdom and knowledge of God, our opinions and intentions are ultimately irrelevant. Compared to the wisdom and knowledge of God, what you think and what you meant are ultimately irrelevant. The moment that Uzzah dropped dead, this point was made. This is where those who are, and listen, if there's something I have learned in ministry, is that people are deeply opinionated. Deeply. Okay, I get it. (laughs) You think this, you think that. Okay, I understand. But ultimately, ultimately, what matters is what God says. Listen, not just about some things. See, this is what it is. What happens, right, is we, in certain areas... We're right, so let me, let me just pull the curtains back a little bit, right? Because this is one of the nasty games that we play in marriage. Some spouses are deeply opinionated about what the Bible says to their spouse about their role. They're just not as deeply opinionated to what the Bible says to them about theirs. So we're selective. So I, I've got this thing over here that, oh, my goodness, man, this, this thing is a 10 to me, and it means everything to me, and, oh, my goodness, I, I can't believe that you didn't get that right and you didn't meet my expectations, but there are 25 things over here that God says to me that I haven't got to that yet. Things like grace, mercy, forgiveness, kindness, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness. I haven't got to that yet. But oh my goodness, (laughs) 
I can't believe. And people like that, they use phrases that are bona fide enemies of making right decisions, in my opinion. I think, I feel, I believe. These are common phrases in their vernacular. And they are rehearsed daily. The best intentions might be behind those phrases, but listen, they are a far cry from God says. Brothers, in your home, the most important voice that your family needs to hear is not yours. God's. And sadly for some, these phrases represent how decisions are being made in their lives. And it has produced, and it will only continue to produce, disastrous outcomes. God, thank you for your word. It is always so clear and simple. I do pray that our hearts and our minds were open to hear and receive what you have for us today. God, it is critical for us to make right decisions, but we can't do that if we are not walking in the practice and the discipline of consulting and waiting on you and getting confirmation from your word before we move forward. And so, Lord, help us to hide what we've heard today in our hearts and to remember it, not even tomorrow, but today. We'll be faced with something, Lord, we'll be tempted to fall back on what we think, what we feel, what we believe, or what we think is right versus agreeing with you and making sure that we are in alignment with your word. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.